to Acts chapter 9. And as I was uh, preparing this message and thinking about the last several messages, uh, a lot of them uh, like really hard-hitting, fair to say, that in addition to the offer of salvation that's been really evident in all of these me- messages, you know, reaching unbelievers, that's been front and center. But these messages have also been really hard-hitting for individual Christians as we've all been pressed about our individual responsibility toward the mission uh, that Christ has entrusted to us, a, a mission that every, what's been really clear, a mission that every single Christian needs to be actively uh, engaged in. And in last week's message, I made the point uh, from the Scripture that not only are we to be chosen instruments of God, that's a phrase that's used earlier in chapter 9 to refer to Saul, He's a chosen instrument of mine, God says. But I mentioned also that not only are we as individuals chosen instruments of God, but even a local church, given local churches, can be chosen instruments of God. And our passage this week is going to help us consider what that actually means. What does it mean for a local church to be a chosen instrument of God? And specifically, what expectations should I have of the church that I belong to. So we're going to take a little bit of the spotlight off of us as individuals, put the spotlight on the church, and allow you to ask some questions specifically about this church, or maybe some other church that you're thinking of, but what expectations should I have of the church that I belong to? And this is important because, uh, now many of you have been with Harvest for a long time, and so you understand the kind of church that we are, and you've been helping to build that uh, kind of church. Sometimes these are really good reminder messages for us. But many others are new over the last year or so. We've seen uh, so many guests. Uh, Some are even new this morning. Uh, One thing that we know is that there have been people every week in Guest Central, it seems, I'm meeting somebody who says, this is my first Sunday here, but I've been attending the church for six months online uh, before uh, we ever came. And so uh, some of you are attending, you're new, some of you are new this morning, and many of you are still as yet undecided about whether or not Harvest is going to be the church that God calls you to be a part of. And we want to help you with that decision, obviously, because we know that this church is not for everyone. This church isn't for everyone. God is working in many different churches in our city. They have different distinctives and different emphases, churches that are gospel-centered and, you know, loving Jesus and seeking to reach the lost. I mean, good churches that are about uh, the work of the Lord— but they have different distinctives in different areas, and part of the process of helping you decide if this is your church is also a process to help you decide if maybe a different church is the place where you really belong, because our distinctives will resonate with some, and, it, and those same distinctives will be an indicator to others that they should perhaps be in a different local church. And we affirm that process, and we affirm the work that Jesus is doing in a lot of other churches in this city and county. So so from a biblical standpoint, as we come to the text, from a biblical standpoint, because that's what really matters when it comes down to our expectations of the church, from a biblical standpoint, not from a church-going consumeristic standpoint, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment, but from a biblical standpoint, what should my expectations of the church be? And we're going to see that in this next episode in Saul's story as he's integrated into the life of the church as a new convert. So let's read the scriptures. This is Acts chapter 9, beginning uh, partway through verse 19. If you have the ESV, you're going to see a natural break there anyway. And, um, And I'll read to verse 31. 
For some days he, that's speaking of Saul, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. All right, in your notes and on the screen, uh, these are the expectations we're going to look for. Um, I expect my church to, first of all, preach Jesus faithfully. Preach Jesus faithfully. Now, that almost seems like a silly thing to have to say, that a church would preach Jesus faithfully. I mean, what else would we preach? But the temptation is actually very real, and many churches have succumbed to preaching something other than Jesus. In fact, there are a lot of churches that allow secondary issues, secondary doctrinal issues to dominate the preaching rather than preaching Jesus. There are churches where the preaching becomes um, merely social justice. And, and the gospel certainly drives us in that direction, and we ought to care for those on the margins, but when that's all you're preaching, you're no longer preaching Jesus. You're not preaching the gospel. Some churches have fallen into preaching morality or a code of conduct or behavioralism rather than repentance and conversion, and so we always need to have our radar on for deviations to the gospel, for distractions away from the gospel. And with that in mind, we see in the text, Saul, we saw this in last week's passage, Saul gets saved on the Damascus road, he's baptized, and he's received into the Damascus church. Verse 19 says, for some days, it's rather vague, we don't know exactly how long, for some days he was with the disciples at uh, Damascus, and no doubt they were filling in some of the blanks for him. They're helping to disciple him because he is a new convert. But then according to Galatians 1, verses 15 through 17, Paul says he also, during this period of time, he also spent some time in Arabia. And he went, this, this would be like the area east of Damascus and a little bit towards the south. It would be what we call today western Saudi Arabia or the country of Jordan and part of southern Syria on today's map. So he went into Arabia to be prepared for his apostolic ministry. Some commentators, pastors would see this as, you know, this was Paul going to seminary to learn how to be an apostle, to be taught directly by the Lord and prepare him for this work of being an apostle to the Mediterranean world. 
and in the church, in the Gentile church specifically. So he goes off into Arabia, being prepared for apostolic ministry. Beyond that, we know that Paul was already very well trained as a Pharisee, very well trained in the Old Testament scriptures. So he already knew the Hebrew scriptures. He knew all the prophecies that pointed toward Messiah. In addition to that, Paul knew the gospel. And he had been a persecutor for several years, and so he was, he was studying the Christians. He was listening to their preaching. He was comparing what he was hearing to the Hebrew scriptures that he knew so well. And he was showing how that, in his mind, was a violation of what the Old Testament taught. He was, he was aware and familiar with the gospel from having heard it repeatedly during the time he was pursuing the church. And not to mention, of course, in all of his preparation, he was filled with the Holy Spirit for a very specific task. He was empowered by God, gifted by God with the gift of capital A apostleship in the church of Jesus Christ. And so in total, he spent three years from the time of his conversion until the time that he left Damascus. He spent three years, part of that time spent in Arabia, before he ever went to Jerusalem. And Luke here, in writing the book of Acts, says, verse 20, he immediately, even from the very beginning, because he had such a strong background in the scriptures and knowledge of the gospel, he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. He went out preaching specifically that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's a phrasing. We read that, and because we've read it so many times in the Gospels, and we read it throughout Paul's writings, we, we, we kind of forget that this phrasing was very distinctive to Paul's preaching. Why was it so important to Paul that he would proclaim specifically that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Why was that so important to Paul? Well, it was distinctive phrasing for him because it was the critical point of contention with the Pharisees, and he would have known that because he himself was a Pharisee. He would have convicted Christians on the basis that they were saying that Jesus was the Son of God, and by saying so, they were saying that Jesus was equal to God. In fact, if you go back to the Gospels, what you find is this was the point of contention that the Pharisees had with Jesus himself prior to the crucifixion. This is what they accused him of before Pontius Pilate, that Jesus was going around saying he was the Son of God, that he was equal with God. When the religious leaders went to Pontius Pilate and said to him, would you crucify him for us? This is what they said. This is in John 19, 7. The Pharisees said to Pilate, the religious leaders said, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Paul would, would later say, I, I uh, desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul, Saul preached Jesus faithfully. It was the entire message for him. He knew that this was not only critical to our understanding of the gospel, but it was going to be the point of opposition. That Jesus himself, as Peter would write, as Paul would write, that Jesus in the gospel was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That not only was it critical to our understanding of who Jesus is, but it was also the most controversial thing he could say, and it was likely to cause great trouble. And when we preach Jesus faithfully, that's going to happen to us too. It's going to cause trouble. And we'll come back to that point. 
But notice also this focus on Jesus is, is going to get the attention of people who need the gospel. Verse 21, and all who heard him, Saul's preaching in Damascus, he's just come to Jesus. And all who heard him, the word is, they were amazed, they were overwhelmed, they were astounded that the guy who had persecuted so many other Christians, that the one who had thrown so many of them in jail and saw to their beatings and saw to their executions, that this man was now preaching Jesus and they were astounded and overwhelmed by that fact. They knew that this was the man, verse 21, who had made havoc in Jerusalem. They knew he had actually come to Damascus to do the very same thing to them to bring them bound back to Jerusalem to meet their fate. And the preaching of Jesus amazes, it astounds, it overwhelms, and it transforms. It captures the heart and the mind, and it alone can save. The more that Saul preached Jesus, the more, verse 22 says, that Saul increased in strength. The more he preached, the stronger he got in his preaching. He confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving, by proving from the Scriptures and from the testimony of those who were being saved, proving that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. Preach. Jesus faithfully. I had coffee this past week with a, a faithful preacher of the gospel, a pastor who is serving in a church uh, that is, uh, the church is gospel-centered. He has the gospel at the heart of everything he does. But it is also part of a denomination that has uh, long ago lost its way embracing uh, the denomination, embracing many non-biblical beliefs. Uh, not surprisingly, as uh, these things go, the denomination itself across the country is in steep decline. Aging congregations, uh, churches closing, buildings being sold off, a lack of new pastors in seminary, and so on. And while we were talking about these things, he said to me, and we know why. He was referring specifically to the abandonment of the gospel. That Jesus was no longer preached and proclaimed in their pulpits, and they had become distracted by all manner of secondary issue and unbiblical teachings. This is a warning to us as individual Christians, but it's a warning to us as a church to always preach Jesus faithfully. And if you're looking for a church... If you're sitting here and this is your first week with us or the second or third week and you're still considering it and still checking out other churches in town, if you're watching on the live stream and that's the thing that you're wondering, is this the church for me? Don't look for comfort. Don't look for the place that makes you comfortable. Don't, don't look for nice facilities. Don't look for lots of activities and ministries on the calendar. Don't look for a slick website or the best music or the greatest kids program. Look for Jesus. Look for Jesus. If Jesus is being preached faithfully, if the gospel is at the center, if the mission is the priority, if love among God's people is evident, then you should join that church. 
It's fine to have all those other things, but Jesus has to be preached faithfully or we completely miss the point. And we ought to expect that of our church. Secondly, you should also expect your church to face opposition bravely. Now, I already said that when we preach Jesus faithfully, it's going to be controversial and it's going to cause trouble. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. This is in Matthew 5, uh, verse 11. Right at the end, he said, of the, at the end of the Beatitude, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now notice that. It's obviously speaking about persecution. He uses the word there, but the really critical word that he uses is when, not if. When, not if. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. It's not a matter of if this is going to happen. It's a matter of it's going to happen. If you're faithfully preaching Jesus, if you're proclaiming the gospel to this world, there are going to be people who don't like you. The Christian life lived biblically invites opposition. I mean, maybe we could just do a survey right now. I could just ask you, those of you who are Christians in the room, can you think of someone right now in your life, maybe in your family, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, someone who does not like the fact that you're a Christian? Survey time. Raise your hand. You know someone who doesn't. And if you don't know someone like that, you're not trying hard enough. You ought to try a little harder. It's just the natural course of things. The Christian life lived biblically invites opposition. There's going to be people who love what you're preaching, who are going to receive the message that you're offering, and there's always going to be people who are angry about it and who are going to try and shut you down by whatever means possible. Now for Saul, verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. They're not happy about the preaching of Jesus and this pressure is actually, this pressure that these Jewish, Jewish believers are bringing, these Jewish uh, leaders are bringing, is actually an indication that Saul's conversion is genuine. That Saul's conversion is thorough. I mean, this guy's a real Christian who's proclaiming the gospel. He's unquestionably saved. Verse 24, but providentially, so they have this plot against him. Providentially, we don't know how their plot became known to Saul. They're watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. They decide that it's not safe. His, his, uh, the, the other Christians in the church in Damascus, they decide it's not safe for him to stay. Verse 25, so his disciples, these, are, these would be his disciples. Saul's disciples are people that came to Christ under his ministry. Again, he's been at it for three years by this point. His disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And then you fast forward a little bit in the account here, a similar thing happens once he gets to Jerusalem. He preached there, and of course, verse 29, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. These are the Greek-speaking Jews, uh, which he was one of, but they were seeking to kill him. They were obviously the more radical group because uh, they were um, involved also in, in Stephen's martyrdom. Verse 30, and when the brothers learned this, so the believers in Jerusalem now, they brought him down to Caesarea. Caesarea is a coastal town on the Mediterranean, 120 kilometers away from Jerusalem. So they take him down to the coastal town. They get him on a ship and they send him to Tarsus, which is on the south coast of Turkey, just kind of cutting the corner um, at the uh, eastern end 
of the Mediterranean. So they send him off to Tarsus, which also happens to be his hometown. And the good thing about that now is he's in a completely different region of the Roman Empire, so he's out of the reach of the religious leaders in, in Jerusalem. And he's in Tarsus, as we piece together the timeline of his life from all the different data we have in the New Testament, he's there for about 10 years. Until Barnabas calls him up, Acts 13, and tells him, hey, why don't we go on a mission trip together? So Saul, Saul would face opposition. The thing about Saul is as he was preaching throughout all the years of his life, he would face opposition differently. And there's different ways for us to face opposition when it comes our way. It would all depend on the situation. At times, Paul would allow himself to be where he would be arrested. I mean, he'd put himself right into the middle of it. And, and on other occasions, he would invoke his Roman citizenship rights to be released from prison. That happened in Acts chapter 16. So he allowed himself to be in a situation. Once he was in that situation and arrested, he invoked his rights to get out of jail. In, in Acts 23, he found out about a plot to kill him, and he appealed to the authorities to protect him, to move him so that he wouldn't be killed. He appealed to Caesar, Acts 25. He appeals to Caesar as a citizen, knowing that he could make that appeal, which meant that he could now go to Rome under their custody and proclaim the gospel there. Sometimes Paul put himself right into it, and at other times he walked away from it. There's a time, and, and this is the principle here, there's a time to walk into the fire, and there's a time to walk away from it. And no matter what, we face the opposition bravely. This is the appeal to us. No matter what, we ought to face the opposition bravely because our confidence is not in this world, but in the next. On one occasion when Paul was um, on, the, on the dock in Miletus and he's about to go to Jerusalem and he's about to go right into the fire and he feels compelled by the Holy Spirit, he says, I feel compelled to go back to Jerusalem. And everyone knows it's a bad idea. Everyone knows that once he goes there, he's going to be under threat of death. He's going to be arrested. But he, he's there on that dock, and he's talking to the Ephesian elders, and this is what he says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now that's courage. That's eyes fixed on Jesus. That's treasures in heaven. That's this world is not my home. And that's what we're appealing for in every Christian. That bravery in the face of whatever opposition looks like in your life. And, and let's, let's admit, let's just say, like, it's not Saul-like. Like, what we're going to go through here isn't going to be like what Paul or Saul went through. It's not going to be that intense. We're not likely to face the loss of our life or imprisonment. But nevertheless, we need to be courageous. When the heat is on in our lives, when we're walking into the fire, we're not going to face what Saul faced, but some of you have lost friends. Some of you have family members that don't want to talk to you. Some of you have lost jobs or lost advancement in jobs because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the kinds of things maybe that we've faced. 
There are people in your life you wish they didn't think you were foolish, but they do. They think you're foolish for being a Christian. And as it relates to what church you're a part of, you should have an expectation that your church will not shrink back when the heat of the fire is becoming uncomfortable for you or for the church as a whole. That together you will pray, and this is interesting, together that you would pray, not that the opposition would end. That's not the prayer that we hear. That's the prayer that we're tempted to pray as we're facing opposition and persecution, we're tempted to say, God, just remove this. All the engineering people here go, that seems to be the solution, the best solution. Let's just get rid of the opposition. All the flowchart and process people. You're all like, just remove the obstacle and get the cogs and wheels rolling again. But that's not the prayer that we ought to pray because that's in essence a prayer for comfort. God, make my life easy. And how is that even a great prayer? God, smooth out the path in front of me. Because it just, it's tough to be brave when your prayer is just make it easy. Does that make sense? Process people? Is that logical? In fact, Byung Chul Han said this, everywhere heroism gives way to hedonism. Everywhere, heroism gives way to hedonism. We just want pleasure. We want ease. And you can't be heroic or brave when that's what you're going after. In fact, as I have read about persecuted Christians around the world, I mean really persecuted Christians in countries where it's illegal to be a Christian or to have a church, these are the three prayers that we hear from persecuted Christians. And we ought to pray like them. Christians in persecuted countries pray for perseverance. Whenever they're asking for prayer for them, whenever the West says, hey, how can we pray for you? One of the first things they always say is, would you just pray that we would endure and that we would not deny Christ? We just want to persevere. The second thing is they would, they would pray for utterance, not a word we use very commonly, but that they would have utterance to speak about their faith to their persecutors and captors. Utterance is both the words that we would speak, so the knowledge or God giving us the actual words to speak, but it's also the boldness to speak it. It encapsulates both of those. And then thirdly, they would pray for salvation for those who are persecuting them. Would you pray for my captors? Would you pray that my time in prison or this beating that I'm enduring or this oppression that's coming in my life, that somehow, God, you would use this? Not that you would remove it. That's a prayer for ease. But God, that in the midst of this persecution, you would use this. You would use my perseverance and how you're working in my life to sustain me. That you would use that to lead this captor, this persecutor to Christ. And we all need to be part of a church. This should be our expectation, part of a church that prays these same things. Because it's an unbiblical attachment to this world that has us praying for comfort and ease in the absence of opposition. When you preach Jesus, you should expect it. All right, let's, let's shift gears and let's get a little bit more like internal to us. Here's a third expectation. You should expect your church to resolve 
issues, I'm talking about internal issues, resolve issues kindly. Now keep in mind, again, from Galatians 1.18, Paul's own hand, we know that Saul went to Jerusalem three years after his conversion. So he's in Arabia and he's in Damascus ministering for three years. Verse 26, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. Three years later, three years of walking with Jesus and preaching the gospel and seeing people come to Christ, three years and the people in Jerusalem still don't think he's a believer. They think he's still got some kind of game that he's playing, that he's setting them up, that this is some grand scheme to infiltrate the church in Jerusalem and take them all down. That's fear, that's suspicion. And it has the potential at this point because you have this man who's so faithfully walking with Jesus, not being accepted by the church, but not just the church, not just a church, but the church in Jerusalem where the apostles were centered and operating out of. It had the potential to cause a rift between Jerusalem and Damascus, those churches, and certainly crushing the spirit of Saul himself. And so he needed an advocate. So enter verse 27, Barnabas, who took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, tells them the whole story. This is legit. This is true. This is what happened. That the Lord spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And you got to love Barnabas. And we all need a Barnabas. We need, we need Barnabas type people in our midst. We need to be like Barnabas. People who, who, who will take a risk, wisely and gently intervene in situations that are not of their making, that they're not involved with, and seek to resolve these difficult issues between people in the church. And so verse 28, something happens at the end of verse 27, verse 28, it's like we're never told and the church gladly received Saul at the testimony of Barnabas. We don't have that in there, but obviously that's the assumption we make. Verse 28, so Saul went in and out among the church at Jerusalem. They welcomed him in, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So he's received into the church, and most importantly, he's affirmed by the apostles, and he has time with Peter, which was really on his heart to do. But it had such potential to go badly and cause a long time and deep rift between believers and between churches. Now, as we think about this, I, there's something I just need to put out here. Um, I need to put something on the table here. And especially for those who are like considering harvest, if you're still thinking about it, is this going to be the church we want to be a part of? I just need to put this out here and it may come as a shock. I don't know. But our church is filled with uh, conflict and upset and strained relationships. It is. That's just the nature of the church. We, we can't advertise ourselves as a church that has it all together because for 20 years, we haven't been able to achieve that. We've never had it all together. There's never been a time in 20 years, 20 plus years of ministry when there hasn't been some kind of conflict going on in the church. It's the very nature of getting people together 
My experience, by the way, like I came to Christ when I was 15. I've only been in two other churches aside from Harvest. I was in one church, the first church, the church I was saved in for six years. Then God moved me over to another church. I was there for 16 years, spent half that time on staff of that church. And in all three of those churches, there were issues. There were issues when I was there. They did not resolve when I left, so I know it wasn't necessarily me. I'm not saying I wasn't involved in issues. I'm just saying there were still issues when I left. But that's the nature of the church, that anytime we get people together, that's what's going to happen. Every church I've been involved with has had conflict. Now listen, if you've been involved in six or seven churches, and there's always a lot of relational upset around you, you're thinking of coming to harvest, I'm just thinking maybe it is you. Maybe you ought to consider that, or at least you're part of it. But anytime you get people together, this is what's going to happen. And I know from talking to other pastors, and I have lots of pastoral friendships and a lot of coaching relationships, it's the same in all of their churches too. Imagine every gospel-centered church with Jesus-loving believers in every corner of the globe today has conflict that needs to be resolved. Harvest air started this morning. I guarantee you somebody's upset about something already. <laughs> Pastor Lee's going to have to go and deal with it this week. It's just the nature of getting people together. We've often used this phrase, uh, that we're a mob of misfits. We, we, we found this phrase when we were wa- working through Luke's gospel. We're a mob of misfits here at Harvest, and at times the mob gets unruly and the misfits are rude to each other. That's just the nature of the church. And the question is not one of if there's conflict in the church. There is. It's not one of if there's conflict, but how is it resolved when that conflict happens? That's the difference. So from the incident here, some thoughts on what you should expect from any church that you belong to. And again, I'm not trying to give you like, here's seven steps towards conflict resolution. I just want us to look at the text here and say, what are some of the things we see in what Barnabas did here to bring about a resolution of this situation? A couple, I'm going to give you four observations, two of them more negative and two positive. But the first one is this, just write down the word incorrect assumptions, incorrect assumptions. It's like a negative observation of, of what's happening here. Incorrect assumptions that the church in Jerusalem had about Saul. The apostles are there. The most mature, the oldest church is there. And they were making incorrect assumptions about Saul. And so often that's true in our conflicts. We assume something that isn't true because we haven't talked to the other person. Again, let me remind you, Saul's been saved for three years. He's been preaching the gospel From the first moment he was saved, people have come to Christ in Damascus as a result of his ministry. But the leaders and the people in Jerusalem still don't think he's a Christian. Now, a little earlier in chapter 8, we read that when Philip went to Samaria and preached the gospel there and a bunch of people were getting saved, Jerusalem was so interested in it, they sent Peter and John down to check the whole thing out. And my question is, why didn't they go to Damascus? 
Why did the apostles not dispatch someone to go and check out Saul and find out whether or not he was genuinely saved? Instead, they sat back in Jerusalem with their incorrect assumptions and it caused heartache and pain. We do this. We assume something isn't true because we haven't talked to the other person about it and so much upset could be avoided on this point if only we would talk to each other. If only we could confirm things are true or false. If only we had a conversation. If only we listened rather than remaining rooted in our false assumptions. Here's a second one, another negative observation, is that there was a failure here, a failure to have God's heart. The failure to have God's heart meant that they had trouble believing that God could save someone like Saul. Had they not seen miracles? Had they not seen the Holy Spirit descend in power? Had they not seen thousands come to faith in Jesus Christ? sweeping the city of Jerusalem, had they not by this time also seen the Samaritans receiving the gospel? And yet somehow in their mind, despite all the miracles and everything that had happened, they didn't do the math to say, you know what? I bet you even Saul could get saved. A failure to have God's heart. They lacked faith and eternal perspective. They had a minimalistic view of the gospel, though they had seen so many miracles happen. And how often do we simply dismiss people that we deem unimportant, people that we deem incorrigible, people that we deem will never change? There's no sense talking to that person. They're never going to change. They won't hear. They won't do anything. And as soon as we do that, we lose God's heart for people because we love and serve and we have been saved by a God who is all about forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption of lost souls. And there isn't a person on the planet that's outside the reach of God. We have to have the heart of God for each one of them. A couple more principles, more on the positive side. In conflict, we have the opportunity to show, thirdly, write this down, genuine love. And that's what's demonstrated here by Paul. This is the defining characteristic of what a Christian is. We're known by our love. Genuine love demonstrated by Barnabas. He puts the needs of others before his own needs. I'm going to go the distance on this. I'm going to insert myself into a situation that may turn out badly for me. Because maybe what this is going to mean is that the Jerusalem church rejects Barnabas too. He puts so much on the line here simply out of love. I love the church in Jerusalem. I love the church in Damascus. I love Saul. I love the apostles. I love all, everyone in this situation and I love God and I don't want to see believers struggling in this way. Love is what drove him and then finally this, write down active advocacy. He speaks up for Saul to the benefit of Saul, but also to the benefit of the Jerusalem church, the Damascus church, the global mission, ultimately to the glory of God. And isn't that the main reason why we would pursue reconciliation? Because simply it just it pleases God. It's a good thing when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It's the heart of God that we would live in that way, and sometimes it just requires active advocacy of someone to step in and say, I'll do something about that. 
And Barnabas was that guy. You know, I've, I've, People you can imagine after 20 years of ministry here at Harvest and eight years of pastoral ministry prior to that in St. Thomas and, and walking with Jesus now for 40 years, um, a little more than 40 years, that, that there, are just, there are people in my life, especially as a result of being in leadership, there are people that I'm not reconciled to, that there are relationships that were strained sometime along the way and that it's not been possible to fix those things. But a heart for reconciliation and a love for God's people means that I'm always open to the conversation. The problem is when we close ourselves off and say, you know what, that's never getting fixed and I'm not gonna do anything about it. But to always remain open to that reconciliation until the day I breathe my last. And then, of course, we just live with the hope that at least we'll be reconciled on the other side of eternity. But how much better that we would be reconciled on this side of eternity? Leaving ourselves open to that is the heart of God. It pleases Him. But sometimes, I have to be honest, it doesn't work out. Sometimes we just can't fix it on this side of eternity. And the irony of what we've just read and studied this morning, the irony of this passage is that in chapter 15, we read about these same two men. They went off on a mission trip together, but in the midst of carrying out the mission of God, they had a disagreement in the scriptures. It's described as a sharp disagreement between them. And the mission team breaks up. And the scriptures never record if Paul or Barnabas are reconciled. We just don't know. We're, we're also not told who is right and who is wrong. And you read the passage about the conflict and you don't know. Paul could be right, Barnabas could be right. And so often in conflicts that Christians have with one another, it's so often hard to tell who's actually in the right and who's in the wrong. But nevertheless, the relationship is strained. All we have with respect to this relationship is a, an indication in Paul's second letter to Timothy that the matter resolved somewhere along the way, at least to some extent, there was a resolution. Paul's heart for for his part in all of this, Paul's heart was reflected in Romans 12, 18. If possible, you hear that? If possible. It's not always going to be possible. But if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You do your part. Because the rest of you just got to leave with God sometimes. That's a noble and godly goal. And it's something we should expect of one another in the church. It's something we should expect our church to have as part of its culture. And then finally this, quickly. You should also expect your church to grow disciples deeply. The summary statement for this passage is verse 31. The church, and here he's talking about the universal church because he refers to several cities and the churches in those cities throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria. The church throughout this whole area had peace. And they had peace, it was a physical, tangible peace because the persecution essentially came to an end at this point. Because Saul was out of the picture and no longer pursuing the church, the church was enjoying this season of peace. Saul was now saved and part of the church. The result of that was the church, notice verse 31 continues, the church being built up, it's getting stronger, it's growing deeper. It's walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. There's vibrant worship. There's intentional walking with Christ. 
There's the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, His evidence among the people. And because of all of this, the last two words, it multiplied. It was growing numerically. There were more and better disciples of Jesus being made in all of these churches, just as the Lord had commissioned them in chapter 1, verse 8. Just as He had given the church the task to do. And you should be in a church that takes discipleship seriously. You should be in a church that prioritizes your growth in Jesus and gives you the tools to help you grow yourself in Jesus. You should be in a church that is free of trite worship and trendy sermonettes and a calendar filled with activities that have nothing to do with the gospel that will not grow disciples deeply in Jesus. Because a church that fails here fails in all. A church that fails in this matter fails you, fails Christ. Whatever church you choose to be a part of, you should expect that that church opens the Word of God from the earliest age of, ages of our children. So in Harvest Kids and in Awana and at High Five, the Word of God is open. You should expect your church to open the Word of God for your youth. Not that teenagers would simply be brought in to have fun and be entertained and let's just get them away from their screens for a couple of hours on Tuesday nights, but that the Word of God would be open for the teenagers and give them tools to be able to resist the temptation of the evil one in this world. You should expect your church to be passionate about worship that draws us into a desire to hear the Word of God. You should expect your church to have the Word of God open in small groups and in the counseling room. You should expect your church to press you to have it open for yourself through the week and with your families. Because that's the only way to grow disciples deeply. And it's only when we grow deeply in Christ that we can stand for Him in the face of whatever the world throws at us. And I want to just conclude with two verses that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, in the same way that you came to faith in Him, by hearing the word of God, by hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Make that the pattern of your life. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Listen, just as you were taught by the word of God. Abounding in thanksgiving. Let that be true of all of us. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, again, um, there's really no opportunity for anyone to squirm out from under the hearing of God's Word today. Every one of us is still so far from the end, so far from being like Christ. We all have things to work on, Father. We all need to grow deeper in who Christ is in our lives. 
We all need more of the Holy Spirit's power, the transforming that comes from his presence in our lives. And so, God, I would ask simply that you would continue that good work in each one of us. God, that you would draw those who are not yet Christians to faith in Christ, but for those of us that are saved, God, I pray that you would help us to go deeper with you, to know your word better, to surrender more fully to your spirit. And God, as we've considered these expectations on us as a church, God, I pray that that's what this church would be about. And God, I pray for Lee and Zoe and Aaron, for Scott and Allison in Glasgow. God, I pray for our own aspirations to reach our county. God, I pray that you would be stirring in each one of us to make this church something that pleases you in every way. Help us to put away selfish ambition. Help us to cast aside our desire for comfort and ease. God, help us to recommit again as a church to the mission that you've put into our hands until that day that we see Jesus break through the clouds. We pray this in his strong name. Amen.